Clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm, welcome and thank you for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management Special Client Event. Today's event is the 17th in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and CEO of the Ashmore Group, Mark Coombs. A replay of this event will be available shortly through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management's President and CEO, Craig Fleming. Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, welcome to our clients, our employees, and other friends of Rockefeller. As Tom said, uh, the weeks have flown by, the months have flown by, the 17th in this special series that we put together uh, to help stay connected to our clients and our colleagues with uh, terrific best-in-class expertise from the outside speaking with those clients and friends of Rockefeller. So today, as uh, Tom said, very happy to have Mark Holmes here. Uh, Mark is the Chief Executive Officer, the Chairman of the Investment Committees, and the founder of Ashmore Group. Um, he has over 35 years experience in emerging markets, which is really the topic that we're going to talk about today. Mark started on the sell side uh, with uh, way back with Grinlay's Bank, which um, uh, was bought by ANZ, the Australian bank, and he spent uh, uh, 15 plus years on the sell side, uh, or 10 plus years on the sell side. Uh, he started Ashmore uh, within ANZ in 1992, uh, bought it out, and it became uh, his firm in 1999, uh, and listed it uh, on the London Stock Exchange in 2006. Uh, but his experience, sell side, buy side, all the way through 35 years emerging markets. So we're talking to one of the most experienced and most knowledgeable individuals in the world today on the emerging markets. Uh, Mark holds a, a, a law degree honor, on, with honors from St. John's College at Cambridge, where he was made an honorary fellow in 2018 for outstanding contribution to business and philanthropy. And on the philanthropy front, Mark founded the Ashmore Foundation in 2008 which supports emerging market communities in which Ashmore invests through local NGOs. The foundation's main focus is on the following countries, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, India, Philippines, Indonesia, and Turkey. And in all of those places, Ashmore has, extens has uh, networks, existing networks and local market knowledge. So uh, Mark, uh, great to have you here today. Thanks for being on our program. Thanks, Greg. Thanks very much for that introduction. Uh, good, very good to be here. Uh, nice to have a chance to chat with you and, and your colleagues and clients. Thank you. Uh, uh, really great to have you. And the introduction was uh, sincere and well-deserved. So can we start, uh, Mark, with um, Ashmore Group, uh, given uh, its size and its history and its, its, uh, its experience and impact in emerging markets? Tell, talk, tell, tell us a little bit about Ashmore Group. Happy to do that, Greg. I'm very happy to do that. Uh, yes, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, the, we, I set the firm up in uh, in '92 within a bank, and uh, and, and we bought it out in, in '98-9, and took it public in 2006. We're a dedicated emerging markets investor. That's all we want to do. We're not interested, uh, other than the Im impact of developed markets on emerging markets. We're only interested in developed markets to meet clients who want to invest with us in emerging economies. We run a broad product range from fixed income through equity to private equity and other alternatives. Um, we're managing about $80 billion today, um, split between institutional and retail money. Uh, institutional is about 85, 86% of what we do. It was all of what we did up until about four, three or four years ago when we decided to look at the retail market and because we felt that some of what we did suited daily dealing and was able to offer retail investors a, a different uh, a way into the emerging markets through us. Um, in terms of geography, our client base is actually very diverse. It, it, you, know, you couldn't make it more diverse by, de by deliberate design. It's a bit of a fluke. We, we sort of have about 10% in the UK, which is where our head office is. And then, the, then it's split between Asia, the US, uh, Middle East, um, and Latin America, pretty much as you might expect. So a slight concentration in Asia about 28, 29%. US is about 25 and LATAM and, and uh, Africa and Eastern Europe and the Middle East fill the rest. Principally uh, institutional money, as I said, pension funds, both public and private sector. 
That's great. It's a, a great overview. And, and again, uh, places you uh, right at the center of uh, a lot of these markets. Um, and uh, Tom did say at the outset, but just so all of our listeners know, again, you can send questions throughout uh, through Teams. Uh, and uh, after Mark and I have gone through some of what we're going to do, we'll take some of those questions. Uh, but Mark, can we start? Uh, and I think this is helpful for everybody. Um, can you provide some sense of uh, the growth of emerging markets over the last 25 years? And, and I used to be more current on these numbers, and you will be, in terms of their contribution to global GDP. I mean, if we went all the way back, which I'm going to ask you to do, to you know, 1950, it was the United States, Western Europe, and Japan, and emerging markets were tiny. And then over the last 30 or 40 years, they have become a significant part of global GDP, obviously global population. So just giving uh, uh, our clients a sense of uh, uh, the relevance of emerging markets today and the growth uh, on a relative basis over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, very happy to do that. Very happy to do that, Greg. I mean, emerging markets, I mean, the, a lot of people regard the sort of the, the start point and the interesting point for emerging markets is they were kind of around late 70s, early 80s. So in 1980, EM, the emerging market countries contributed 37% of global GDP. Um, by this year, that's up to 58%. So it, it's a pretty big increase. Um, with the IMF's forecast, and of course, much though I love the IMF, you always have to take that forecast with a pinch of salt, but at least it's somebody's forecast, is that by 2025, that will be 60%. Um, within that, if you look within emerging markets, you kind of break it down into Asia and the rest. Asia is 56% of emerging market GDP. LATAM, Eastern Europe and the Middle East to get have each about 13% and Sub-Saharan Africa is 5%. So you can see that Asia on its, on its own is a pretty big number. And then obviously, of course, China is the elephant in the room with the biggest share and, and can account for 30% of global growth going forward. So of the of the forty percent that's still non-emerging markets, and we'll get to China because in, arguably that's that's almost out of the emerging market category. Of the forty percent, yeah, you've got uh, U.S., Europe, and, and Japan. The, uh, is the U.S. twenty percent still, or has it gone below twenty percent, roughly? Do you know? Uh, it's around there, a little below. It depends on the trend. Is obviously not, not upwards at this stage. Yeah. So if, if we if we then look at the the uh, the different types of emerging markets by the state of the economy, and I know this is how you've uh, categorized them, you would uh, broadly divide them into um, three buckets, depending upon really the local development. Uh, can can you talk about the, the the three buckets? And and I think bucket one literally is China today, and then bucket two is a group of uh, economies that have. Uh, uh, developed enough of a domestic market and economy that maybe they're on a path to get where China's gotten. And then you have the the, the third group, which is earlier in the curve. Uh, but uh, kind of laying out uh, the three categories and, and giving some sense of who's in what group, I think, is helpful as well. You're very happy to do that. I mean, I, th I think you're right. We, we say it's China and then the other two things. I mean, China is obviously, I mentioned, 30 percent of global growth going forward. Um, China over the next five years is going to contribute more growth than the entire developed world. Um, it's uh, it you know in through 16 through through 19 it produced six percent annual GDP growth. This year it's going to have about two percent GDP growth when all the rest of us are going to be in in negative growth and recession. Um, it is probably going to grow next year. We're thinking that um, they're going to be at about eight percent growth. Um, which will be a significant outperformance over sort of two to three, maybe below two in some cases in, in, in the developed world. There may be a bounce in some that get over three. But China is really the elephant in the room. And the reason it's the elephant in the room is because it's an interesting animal because it's both a user of capital and a provider of investment material. It's re it provides reserves to the global economy. So China has 25% of the world's reserves at over $3 trillion. I mean, that's a huge amount of money. So China is a very big player in terms of investing what goes on, what goes on in the world, and that's and, and that means that it, it it is somebody that we want to look at we look at as a client, not simply as a place to invest. So it's relatively unusual in that, although emerging markets generally are growing, such that they're creating surpluses of capital, China is is certainly the largest investor from the emerging markets into other emerging economies. And the other side of China is it continues to be a user of capital 
both of its own but but of other people both in equity and fixed income um, it's it is providing 13 percent of the fixed income markets in the world now uh, and it's number two so the us is 35 percent china is now 13 and growing very rapidly um, it's 52 percent of emerging market fixed income so china is 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 in a category of its own but not not least because of its size and because it's a user and a contributor of capital but also because it has a pretty unique approach to economic policy at the moment it's emphasizing supply side reforms now over demand stimulus so you've got a situation where the chinese kind of worked out that the totally export-led model was a little bit limiting and that what they needed to, and they worked that out in the late 80s early 90s and what they needed to be doing was um, was to find a way of developing domestic big domestic economy and big domestic consumption so they focused on three things domestic consumption growth which has been happening very strongly technology and trying to be a leader in technology globally and we see that and what they've been rolling out and the third element which isn't quite so understood but they've really put a lot of effort into is the green economy it's an enormous amount of investment in the industrialization of green solar panels and things that are green and those three things they're pushing very hard to make something that creates them a very big strong domestic engine particularly as a lot of the things around that are where they have fairly simple industries where they have big polluting industries they want to deal with that so China is 100% the elephant in the room. Um, the estimate is uh, that Chinese markets will be two to three times larger than the US uh, in, by 2050. That's not far. It's not. So that's the, that's the elephant in the room. Is there any, on the, just on the growth uh, numbers, is there any other major economy in the world that will have positive growth this year and the notion of 8% growth next year, I mean, I, I guess they're, they're going to get there, but it's going to snap back that much for them. Well, it's already snapped back pretty aggressively. There were big negative growth in Q2. They were, they were really, Q1 and Q2 were not great for them, as you might imagine, particularly coming off the back of March, April time. They were negative there, but they've had a massive snapback in, in Q3. And their estimate now is that they're going to be at 1.9 to 2% by the year end. They're the only economy in that position as a major economy. It's phenomenal numbers. I mean, subject to, subject to. So when we look at EM, there's China in a bucket of its own, a user and a provider of capital, and you can't afford to ignore it, whether you're an investor there or whether you're looking at what they invest in. These two are major drivers of what happens to both DM and EM growth. Then when you look at the other two types of emerging economies, and this is a simplistic bucketing, I'm giving you just to, because it's the way we think about it broadly. There are what we could probably call emerging markets, other emerging markets. And then there's what the equity world probably calls frontier markets. And that's probably even a little bit broader if you include debt in it. So when we look at emerging markets, the, the bigger emerging economies, these are emerging economies where they've done the most important thing, which is learn over the years that if they're always dependent upon foreign capital, you get the world famous Soros reflexivity, which is everybody panics when things go badly in the developed world and all the capital leaves. And so they've worked out, they worked out in early on, late in the 90s, and certainly through 97 and the Korean crisis, and then big time through 2008-9, they needed to build local markets. So they've done two things. They've tried to build domestic pension funds and therefore create uh, a, a bid for long-term long assets. Uh, they've created domestic things, fixed income markets, firstly through the governments and then the corporates where they're raising money in their own cap currency and with their own curve. And they've tried to build domestic stock markets. They've tried to reform laws. They've tried to manage transparency, which has been particularly important in the equity market. And those economies have been noticeable this time that they've been able to do certain things that would that a counter-cyclical developed market government would do. So they've been able to start producing stimulus by bringing down rates, uh, by supporting their domestic corporations, by doing the kinds of things that we do in the US, the UK, et cetera. And the bigger economies have been able to do that. And those economies to us are reaching a different level, much more liquidity. You can enter and leave the country in terms of size. Um, they have the ability to be counter-cyclical, which a lot of emerging economies never used to have 10 years ago, none of them. And they're interesting places that they've got very large populations usually. And the demographic is a big supporter of domestic growth and helps them grow all of that more. There's China is a special case, and then those bigger emerging economies. And then that third category, the frontier economies. Sorry. Just before you go to the third category, who do you have? Who's in bucket two? A variety of people, Brazil, Mexico, uh, Colombia, you'd say, although it's on the less liquid end. 
Uh, South Africa is there, but of course, it doesn't accept that there can always be policy mistakes. Turkey is, was there, Indonesia, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Taiwan. Uh, there's uh, significant numbers of countries in that space. Big local markets getting bigger. Yeah, is there any, but they're all measurably behind China, which is-, is Oh yeah, yeah, no, not even close, I'm afraid. I mean, China is, is, is the largest economy, well, second largest economy in the world, but, but, but won't be long before it's considerably larger if things continue on their current trend. And, and so, yeah, and a lot of those countries, particularly the Asian ones, are highly influenced by what happens in China. But China's clearly made very clear that what it plans to be is a very large global power, possibly the largest in all ways, both political and economic, over the next 50 years. That is, that is their intent. And, you know, that, that is something that the world will have to manage through as they get steadily larger and the U.S. works out its place in comparison to China, just like the Brits worked out their place in comparison to the U.S. after the Second World War. Things evolve. I, I didn't know the Brits really had ever gotten comfortable with that. No, we haven't. We still believe <laughs> we're the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> so I actually you, you, you've, got, uh, you've got category three, bucket three. Yeah, bucket three is frontier markets. Um, that's both debt and equity, and all of this is debt and equity. But frontier markets is the countries that have a problem when you get that reflexivity. When everybody knee-jerk panics and goes, oh my God, where do I put my money when I'm worried about risk? These are the countries that rely on foreign capital for debt and equity financing because it just dries up. And in a crisis, people run home, typically, typically to US treasuries. Um, and and that, that gives them a, a major problem. And those economies are the ones you're going to see all, we probably have. I mean, we've seen all the headlines in the last six months or so. You get all the, the academics jumping on the bandwagon saying, oh, debt is terrible. Give them debt forgiveness. This is a really good idea. Write off all their debts, which, of course, is a terrible idea because it means they never get access to any money except government money, which means they're totally um, obliged to follow US and, US and or Chinese policy if that's all they do. But in any event... Those are the countries that have that. No local capital market, no domestic financing to speak of, serious lack, lack of reserves, legal and corporate infrastructure often quite poor. And those are countries that are, you would expect. A lot of sub-Saharan Africa is that. Uh, the smaller economies uh, in LATAM, of course, would be that. Um, smaller economies in, in Eastern Europe, less of them. Um, and then um, the Vietnams, these kind of economies uh, in Asia. But although Vietnam is and Cambodia is, is, is rapidly trying to grow its way out of that and is growing very well relative to others. So that's, and Vietnam's a little bit of a cross, but, but it still doesn't have a deep market where it can finance itself domestically and build domestic curve and take away the currency risk for the government yeah. uh, of, of borrowing internationally. Uh, that was a great uh, overview because uh, you categorize a lot of the world and, and you know, China with its own bucket, but the other two. We've got some interesting questions that have come in, uh, so I'm going to mix them in uh, already. Uh, uh, and um, the first one is, uh, uh, how will the outcome of the 2020 U.S. election, two weeks from today, amazingly, affect the EM space? Uh, yeah, well, that's a very good question. Um, of course, if I tell you, I have to shoot you, because, um, of course, I know. <laughs> a, I know the outcome, and B, I know the impact. I'm, I'm happy I'm there. Um, I, I think it, 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 there'd be some interesting policy nuances. So some of the obvious places where there might be quite a significant, the, the, the first decision for, well, if it's the, if it's the same government that, that, is, that, that you have now in the US, you would expect the policy framework to stay relatively the same, which is aggressively anti-China, anti concerned about Chinese growing economic and political power. Um, you, you would expect um, countries where a difference has tried to be made, both in terms of the Middle East and in Latin America, um, that continuing. So the effort to, to change the government in Venezuela, for example, continuing, um, with, with very much focusing on validating a, a, the National Assembly uh, president. Um, I think it would be more the same. I think if you get a change of government in the US, um, I think that the, the cautiousness and wariness of China will continue. What may change a little bit is the style. So it, it may be more, and, and in the end, that may not change an enormous amount, but what it will do is there'll be, it'll probably be a little bit more nuanced in terms of how and when to deal with the, the, what's perceived as the Chinese threat to the US hegemony, if you like. Um, I think in certain other countries, there could be quite a big difference. I think 
Um, I, I think either government in the first two years is going to be seriously focused on, uh, and, and one would hope, on, on dealing with the domestic problems, dealing with what is going to be an unbelievably enormous deficit, and dealing with trying to solve US problems. But to the extent the foreign policy matters, it's going to be focusing, I think, on maybe being a little bit more nuanced in terms of things like Iran, things like Venezuela, things like Mexico, um, even the UK and Europe being a little bit more nuanced in terms of not necessarily the goals changing enormously, but just trying to manage them over a more yeah, political way, I guess. Yeah. Uh, another question from Josh Weitzman, and we were going to touch on this anyway. Uh, what impact has COVID-19 had on the emerging market investing landscape? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and and there's, a, there's a broader question, which is what, what has the impact been on emerging economies themselves? Um, it, Can you there's a bunch of things going on. Yeah, answer both, because I know you've got perspectives on the second one, too. For the yeah. um, in terms of, uh, if we look at, let's focus first of all, well, let's deal with alternatives first. So kind of private equity and those kinds of things, it's basically gone a little bit on hold. So there's just been less activity in private equity in and investing and divesting. And all the things you think about running a private, as a private equity investor, running a company has been about battening down and trying to make the company do the right things and survive like any other company. But there's been much less investment and divestment in that space. It's kind of frozen a bit. Then you look at fixed income on public equity. In public equity, um, you've seen the same trends that you've seen in the US towards the growth side of EM companies. So there are some obvious serious growth stories in technology around pretty much the same things that you're seeing in the developed world, around the, the, the takeaway businesses, the e-commerce, all that kind of stuff. You know, huge runs up in those kinds of things. Um, small cap companies that may have may have been winners found it very difficult to, to attract, a, 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 if you like, uh, supporters for the first two or three months. But again, I've had a very strong rally in the last three, very, very strong. So I've been, been, been strong performers. Um, so equities has generally have done very well. In fixed income land, it's kind of broken into two broad parts, investment grade and sub-investment grade. And I'm looking at sovereign and corporate credit. Uh, in, in, in the sub-investment grade or high yield space, uh, sovereign credit suffered pretty heavily in March, April, as people were saying, oh my gosh, everyone's saying all these guys should default and go home. Um, and that does its normal thing, which is create a lot of value. Um, uh, that's actually, uh, the, the better borrowers there have rallied very strongly. There are some borrowers there. Some of those people I talked about in terms of frontier markets that are going to have challenges, I think, and have got to decide where they go in terms of their debt profile over the next one to two years. So those frontier markets in the debt space, you, you've got to be sure you're clear that they're clear on how they're going to be managing their way through the problem, given possibly less access to capital. And then on the investment grade space, uh, both corporate and, and sovereign, uh, we've seen very strong interest. Um, and, and that's and the overlaying thing that's happening there in fixed income and to a lesser extent in equity is although QE and the flooding of market with cash tends to immediately create a very strong bid for developed market assets, there is some trickle-down effect. And so, and more importantly, there's a relative value call. So one of the one of the client bases that we see a lot of interest in what we do for is investment grade, either longer or shorter duration, it depends on what they want, insurance company bid for dollars, for dollar assets. So very strong there. And to a lesser extent in sub-investment grade, but big time in investment grade assets because they're getting a 200, 300 basis point pickup over treasuries. And everyone's looking at, wait, we're going negative or near zero yields. I need something, but I don't want to be buying some investment grade paper. I've got as much investment grade as I want in the dollar world. Oh, okay, here's an opportunity in corporate or sovereign IG. Um, so that's kind of how I see the investing landscape. In terms of EM and how they're dealing with COVID generally, there's a few interesting things there. Um, and, and, and they're things that none of us would have thought about, right, until we, well, Maybe some of us would, <laughs> but somebody might have done. But there are things that are going on in the emerging world which are quite interesting. Obviously, in my firm, we, we have a lot of businesses in the emerging world, both in asset management and other, and a lot of my colleagues are from the emerging world. And one of the earliest things some of them were saying to me is they're saying, this is more a developed market problem, to which I went, what are you, crazy? That's nuts. But but actually, if you think about it, EM has had, has a couple of benefits that developed markets doesn't have. It tends to be much less dense populations. Yes, they have some huge dense cities, but across the whole countries, there's a much bigger rural population. They tend to be much younger. 
uh, and they tend to have a much larger informal economy. And, and because it's such a large informal economy, it's a serious problem if they're not working. And so what tends to happen is though obviously economic activity has been suppressed, the rebounding growth next year for EM is gonna be very high. China, probably the highest, but we're expecting three to 5% growth rebound. More people keep working. And they're also used to these kinds of things. I mean, disease is a very big factor in some of the, certainly the frontier economies. And that it, I don't know whether they're better at managing it, they're just kind of used to managing it. So there's that going on. The other, the other idiosyncratic thing that's happening is a lot of emerging markets, where are some big exceptions like China, but are actually in the Southern hemisphere. And they've had the worst weather time. They're just coming out of it. They're in the spring. So in Latin America, the numbers, are, they're there, but they're dropping and people are feeling more comfortable because they're outside more the whole time and there's much more comfort in terms of that. There's a little idiosyncratic difference too. So we in the Northern Hemisphere are going into the worst period in terms of climate. They're, they're sort of coming out of it. So EM has dealt with it that might have had relatively high death rates, but that gradually settles down as it passes through you see that younger economies, more spread, younger populations, more spread out economies, has meant that they've dealt with it relatively well. And we don't know yet how we're going to finish dealing with the developed world, right? We're all entering the winter second wave here, and we have no clue as to how we're going to come out of that. Whereas you can see a bit of, you can see it settling in the end. And in, in some of these emerging market economies, uh, as you said, uh, you know, malaria is a big problem, and, and I think certainly in a number of your bucket three, uh, did that mean that? that even with the spread of COVID-19, that uh, they avoided more than not lockdowns. And, you know, so many of them were working uh, in, in, as you said, an informal economy day to day. So they just basically dealt with it throughout. Uh, is that Was that more more prevalent there than in some of the developed? It's, very, it's a very interesting question because I don't completely know the answer. I know of examples all over the place. I mean, clearly there were countries where they said, health is everything, we're locking down. We're locking everything down. Argentina did that. Damn the economy, we're locking everything down, we keep everybody safe, everybody safe. And initially that was massively popular. It very quickly became massively unpopular when nobody had any money and the government didn't have any money to give them. So approval ratings went to 80% for the new president, down to 32 or 35 now. So there were some countries that did the, the sort of the traditional de developed world educated thing. But some of the larger countries actually said, that, you know, there's a limit to how much we can do this. And there were some localized lockdown activity, but global, but, but across the world, national lockdown, particularly in Africa, Latin America, uh, didn't really happen on the broadest possible scale. And those countries have seen less suppression of growth. I mean, ironically, Africa, which everybody was expecting to do extremely badly out of this, has touched wood for them, done relatively less badly in the, in the, in the near term. And then in Asia, they went incredibly aggressive on the lockdown strategies. They locked everybody down. They enforced it in most countries, and only and the looser ones had a bit more transmission. But they've done very well at suppression. But as we all know, suppression's fine. But in the end, you unsuppress. So it's all about. But they've they've done a much better job of playing for time, for vaccines, and and you know, good luck to them. I mean, it's all about when the vaccine comes. Yeah. Just to shift gears, this is an interesting question from Adam Compton, uh, who says, um, India always seems to have plenty of potential and that never seems to change. Do you see any changes that can lead to a more competitive economy, given the great demographics and potential for growth there? I didn't hear that, but I bet that was India, was it? Yes, sorry. Yeah. It was yes. <laughs> no, I missed it. I missed the beginning, but I kind of got it from the end. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, look, as an Englishman, we have a long and natural affinity with India. Um, yeah, and it can be, it is a wonderful, but it can be a highly frustrating place. Uh, it, 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 in many ways, people say we, they took the best, but perhaps all the worst of the Brits. And, uh, and, and it has, so it has, it has its challenges. It's always going to be a country that's just about to do fantastically well. There is no question. It's an enormous engine of e economy. It's getting bigger. The big issue for India is, is the ability to which they're prepared to liberalize their economy and their financial and local markets. It's a, it's, it's a pretty large market, but it's a very controlled market. You know, central, central authorization for foreign borrowing, you know, authorization needed for everything you do as a company in the capital markets. Very, very difficult to create liberalized large economies doing that. So uh, if, you know, if you were to ask me who are the winners of tomorrow be, I would have to say India, but there is no question that India needs to continue to liberalize and to 
manage its way through a bureaucratic mindset, which is which creates a, a huge torpor. But they have a huge amount of people who are very energetic and want to do better, which is a great starting place. Is there much, uh, I don't know the answer to this, it'd be interesting, much uh, trade between India and China? Or are they mostly, uh, you know, in their own channels dealing no, with- No, there is, there is some, and they're, 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 yeah, because they're both quite big economies now. I mean, they have their own issues going on right now, and, and the, the issue there is one that they're skirmishing on the border yeah. you know, militarily. Uh, I think India is obviously nervous of China marching down the Silk Road and uh, making it not so silky for India. Um, therefore, they want to stand up to that. Um, there has always been some back-channel activity. There, there's, there is. Um, they're big economies that can't afford to completely ignore each other. Uh, they're, they're both trying to establish themselves in that neighborhood. And China is, is obviously a much bigger and, and more aggressive animal than India is. And so um, that is a delicate balance that the Indians need to manage. Yeah. Um, just on, on China, then we'll, uh, we'll go back to some of the questions you and I talked about. Hillary White wants to know, or uh, ask, what are your thoughts on the trade war with China and US-China relations? I know it's a broad category. And you've touched on it a little bit, uh, but maybe even also in the context of the election, uh, do, do things liberalize a little bit? Or if uh, if the administration changes, uh, would it be a continuation of this administration's? Uh, uh, clearly, if the Trump administration wins this election, they're, they're, they look like they're doubling down on a more aggressive approach. But um, and, and, and actually, Mark, you're out there. How does that play in other developed markets and, you know, uh, you know what, what? What are what is the, the the tenor of this around around the world? Um, I th I think in other developed markets there's an awareness that China is big and getting bigger, and what everybody wants to do is have China play in a global framework that we can all get on with and and, in, and work together and get wealthier and poorer get less poor together. So there is a huge desire to keep China within a global framework. Um, the concern in the rest of the developed world is that the current American strategy is, is possibly trying to push them out of that or might risk pushing them out of that. But I think there's acknowledgement in that developed world that, that, that America, of course, has a point. China is growing and is relatively aggressive in its pursuit of economic and political power. And uh, America's been that for years. And so there's that natural threat going on. And therefore, they, there's something they should be reacting to. And it was understandable why they react to it. Um, I think if you talk to Asia, for them, in the nicest possible way, China's the only game in town, both economic and politically, um, obviously oversimplifying. But if they look at what they're going to be doing in terms of if, if the Chinese economy gets bigger and bigger and can suck in imports, it's going to be sucking them in from Asia first. So that's a very positive thing for the rest of Asia. And they're very nervous about you know, with, you know what's happening in terms of Chinese foreign policy in Asia. Um, I, I think what will happen if it's a different government, and I think the perception from others if it's a different government, it, it is that my personal view is the song remains the same, but it probably doesn't get sung quite so loudly. And there's probably some, I'm using the wrong word, but some detente, some, some, some mutual giving of something. The Chinese, she will give something perhaps, and if it's a Biden presidency, they will give something. There, there will be a, some form of rapprochement. But, but what everybody is quite aware of is that you know, China is very clear on its future plan. Its currency is going to be convertible, and there are uh, and fully convertible, and and the and it's virtually there now, and is going to be a store of value like the U.S. dollar. And their plan is to displace the U.S. dollar, much like the dollar displaced the pound, and and they're making progress towards that. I mean, one of the most interesting things that we found over the last five years, in particular, is U.S. fixed income and U.S. Um, sorry, U.S. Treasuries obviously are a flight to safety for people who think about dollars. What's been happening in terms of China is that within emerging markets, when people are scared about risk, both in equity and in fixed income, they buy, US, they buy Chinese bonds, Chinese government bonds. And Chinese government bonds have become a risk reducer and a flight to safety within EM. So at this stage, we've gone from any kind of EM sell-off, everybody bought US treasuries, to now, if it's a mild EM sell-off, they're buying Chinese bonds. If it's a big EM sell-off, then they're still buying U.S. Treasuries for the minute. But there's that gradual, and the, and the Chinese bond market is growing dramatically, and they plan to produce, you know, have the largest economy in the world. So therefore, they want to be the best store of value for people. So 
um, everybody's aware that's going on. We get, the bottom line is we're all going to have to live with it. And it's a question of how we live with it and how we manage it. And there are just differences of approach. And it may be that if there is a new US regime, it might be the same concern and the same story underneath, but more of a rapprochement effort to keep China within the global community and for the US to still be in the global community. But I, I you know, one thing I, you know, we, none of us can forget, you know, US has got a whole lot of problems right now, but driven from COVID. And if you're the new president or the old president, you should be focusing on that first. And I think there will be. Yeah. The, uh, is this the first time? I think I, I, this is rhetorical. I know the answer, but you're closer to it. Uh, and when you said this to me, candidly, it was news to me because it's just never existed in your career or mine or modern history. In the event of distress, the safe haven was the U.S. government treasuries first and foremost. It, it, this is the first time that uh, that Chinese bonds would be for some emerging market investors a safe haven that they will go to instead of U.S. Treasuries. That's 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 correct, right? This is the first absolutely. time. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Within within our local within our local currency book, so we, we manage some pure local currency bond portfolios. Within that, if, if the money can only be in local currency bonds, when we're concerned about risk, big overweight in Chinese bonds protects us enormously. Acts just like a U.S. Treasury within the local government bond universe. A huge sell-off in everything. It's going to not help you in the same degree as the U.S. Treasury, but in a mild sell-off, it definitely does. And within a pure local currency bond portfolio, it's definitely a flight to safety. It's performing just like a treasury for local currency emerging market government bonds. Well, um, you know, why don't we stay with that in terms of financing? Uh, and this gets into IMF and and emerging market restructurings, but also gets again back to China as a source of capital and foreign investment in emerging markets. Um, there have been some changes in the way the IMF is viewing emerging market restructurings, which in, in, for somebody like you who's worked in it for decades, these are you know, you know, seminal major changes. And part of that is driven by the fact that if the IMF doesn't get the restructuring done, the Chinese uh, will be there with capital saying, we're happy to step in and, and lend here on a basis that might be more favorable to China. Can, can you just talk all about that as part of this, this dialogue? Happy to do that. Happy to do that, Greg. Um, yes, there's been a couple of things going on. So there's been some pretty hard, let's focus first of all on, on some of the EM countries that have struggled and had some stress recently. Um, Ecuador is a very good example where uh, a government that, that that is a socialist government and was elected to be such has proved to be um, left center rather than extreme left and has run some very um, impressive efforts to, to sort of turn around the economy and sort themselves out, including getting very close to the IMF in the US, which had never happened with the previous government. They basically had a, had a really bad impact from COVID. They, had, they have a very poor, apologies to any of them who may be listening, a relatively poor um, healthcare infrastructure, and it gave them some immediate problems. Um, they dealt with that um, very efficiently and very effectively um, and 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 said, look, we've got a cash flow problem. How do we get how do we get through this? And we were one of the people who are actively involved with them. And in looking at what they were doing and what was going on and, and their need to term out their foreign currency debt, um, which of course their, their domestic currency is a dollar two, but their debt, um, we picked up on a few things that are happening that have kind of changed the environment a little bit. And I think I'm hoping for the better. So there, there were two or three things. The first thing is the role of the IMF, where the IMF is a huge lender. It's heavily conflicted historically. In this case, it was a relatively small lender uh, and, and was comfortable with the policies that were being pursued by the government. And this is the first time we were able to organize a term out and restructuring of debt, whereby, where, whereby an IMF sign-off was a precondition to, to the deal happening. Now, that's never happened before, often because the IMF, I think, has seen itself as public sector money. We should always be protected over private sector money. We don't want to blend the two. We don't want to get mixed in. And they try to be very standoffish. And this was the first time where they very, very happily say, we, we understand what they're doing. We think it's the right thing to do. We support them as a country. We're happy to sign off on their, on their plan, their economic plan. And that was a condition precedent to the deal. And I would like to think that will become more required going forward. So those countries that are prepared to run proper policy that, that the IMF is happy to sign off on are going to get help and are going to get restructuring help from the private sector and also cash help from the public sector. I think that's a big positive. The other thing that came out of that restructuring, which was very interesting, is something there's something called collective action clauses, which is which is meant to stop holdout creditors from from preventing a very large, particularly sovereign restructuring happening. 
And, and these haven't been really tested before. And in the case of, of Ecuador and Argentina, they could have been, and Argentina has, has had a restructuring as well. And, and there was a lot of uh, noise about trying to use collective action clauses, not in the way they were quite intended, and trying to negotiate on and on and on, series by series. And what we were able to do as part of both restructurings was to change the, the terminology and collective action clauses to stop sort of Pac-Man cram down strategies on creditors and make sure countries had to negotiate in good faith. So those are good things coming out of the problem. The, the, the big thing for the IMF here is, of course, that A, they can help, but B, if you think about it, they have a policy and a political interest in helping because, as you said quite rightly, Greg, they're only half the story. And it may be they're a third of the story in 25 years' time. The Chinese are, are, are providing capital to all these countries, in fact, to both of those countries, on terms that are opaque, not to the Chinese, but to the rest of us. We don't know what they are. And therefore, that does give you another 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 uh, another uh, player in the game that you've got to think about when you think about the future growth of these countries, their importance geopolitically, and influence of of the U.S. consensus as opposed to the Chinese one. So there's a lot of moving parts going on. Um, but but we think net net that the reaction of the IMF has been pretty good, and they're trying to be broader and trying to help these countries in a more positive way. And we think that's excellent. But, but interestingly enough, I mean, you know, uh, and maybe I'm pushing it too far, but part of the reason for that is the fact that China's there as a source of capital on on, on, on competitive terms. And, and you know, I, I could say correspondingly, the Americans have mostly channeled money over the decades through the IMF, but they're, they're not there as an independent source of capital in any of these situations, right? So it's really IMF with Western dollars and China as the options for these countries. Yes unless they have domestic capital markets, but when they don't, unless they have domestic capital markets, but when they don't and they get into trouble, then um, yes, if they get it, I think the Western consensus understands that, hmm, wait a second, we can make this as ugly as we want, we can be as aggressive as we want, we can make governments fall, but if enough governments fall, this is pushing people into the arms of, of Chinese capital only as the only alternative. And, uh, you know, that, but that's probably not a sensible thing. What is probably an ideal thing globally, in the honest truth, is it's always good if there's more than one source of capital. It keeps everybody honest, you get differential pricing, you keep a bit of a balance in the world. So the rise of the Chinese as a capital provider is not necessarily a bad thing unless it completely crowds out IMF brackets, Western capital and everybody else's capital. I think a balance is, I think a lot of these emerging economies like it. And it's been very interesting, the emerging economies themselves well, at one stage, we're taking a very large amount of Chinese capital, particularly I mean, Africa is a very good example. And they found they started getting uncomfortable with having too much money on too easy terms from one place and not enough from the IMF consensus. We don't need the IMF, we'll just take it from China. And what's happened is the emerging economies themselves are saying, wait, we can build our domestic capital markets. Great. If we then ever need help, we should be looking for help probably from both places. And of course, both places would want to help just on their own. But I think in the broad balance of things, being a human, I think it's quite good that all players are involved. The trick is going to be how we get everybody to the table when both have indebtedness there. So Zambia now will be a really interesting case in point. The Chinese have been a big provider of capital to Zambia. So the bond market and the IMF have been involved there, although sort of in and out. And it'd be very interesting to see where Zambia goes from here. What's interesting, uh, and I think there's still not that many people, uh, even who are markets-based, who recognize that the Chinese are the alternative source of capital in so many of these economies around the world, including in the Western Hemisphere, and that uh, their uh, their their government bonds are uh, are rapidly becoming a, a safe haven behind the you know U.S. Treasuries. I mean, these are s seminal secular changes in the way the world is functioning. Um, uh, Mark, let's go to investing a, a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about. Um, uh, emerging markets versus developed markets. U.S. stocks have done particularly well in the last decade. The uh, 2020s could be a good time to invest in emerging markets. This is kind of macro and you read this in a lot of places. Um, can you talk about, you know, what, whether that looks like it's the case, uh, you know, more broadly across emerging markets? And then I got a couple of follow-on questions that came in from the audience around investing. Yeah, yeah, very happy to do that, Greg, happy to do that. So EM has got some, some obvious, um, if you like, advantages over the developed world over the next 10 years. Um, starting now, 
Um, obviously, there are some pretty big yield differentials in terms of investing in EM over DM, be it in dollars or in local currencies. Um, even if even if you know yields didn't change a whole lot from where they are now, you get a, a very nice positive return out of investing in an emerging market uh, government bond or a corporate bond than you would in a developed market one. So there's a yield differential to support what you want to do. Um, spreads are relatively wide over, over US treasuries. And if you believe that the US's relative advantage will shrink over the next 25 years, and EM's relative disadvantage in some ways, although not in the growth perspective, but in some ways historically growing from a smaller place, um, will, will get less as well. That then you would say that you say that EM spreads are probably too wide from where they should be and DM spreads are probably too narrow. I mean, when you've had massive QE and you've had enormous amounts of stimulus, you know, zero percent interest rates for dollars, euros, negative, whatever. Yeah, this is not long-term sustainable at all. So investing there, you're relying on bigger fool theory, which is more public sector debt issuance to keep buying the stuff back, uh, or you find someone else to buy it from you cheaper. But there is a moment when you get over that. And I mentioned how insurance companies at the beginning of this call were starting to look for positive carry in dollars and, and trying to say, how do I take a little bit more risk? Um, that's going to happen in bigger size. That's sort of a couple of things. The next thing I think that is important is EM equities. I mean, I think EM equities is probably the real opportunity in the next decade. EM fixed income, fine, better than DM fixed income. But EM equity is really the, next, the big opportunity. When I mentioned before, when we had all that and have had all that QE and DM, the first thing it does is drive down yields and drive up values in bonds and equities, right? In DM, that's the first thing it does. And some of it perhaps trickles down, but initially what it does is everybody thunders out of EM to go into safe havens and just keeps buying guppies or whatever it is. Eventually that stops. And when that stops, a couple of things are gonna happen. People would be selling the dollar and people would be buying EM. And they'll probably look to buy EM for greater growth because they'll see greater growth. I mean, you know, I think we talked about that before, but it's likely that, you know, EM growth in the next 12 months is gonna be, you know, three to 5% and DM is not even gonna be, you know, it's gonna be touching sort of two. And so that gives you a better place to be a bigger growth environment, much bigger domestic capital markets being grown. There should be an enormous opportunity in EM equity. Um, and then there is the, the dollar sell-off, which is not, which a relative dollar weakness, which people have been talking about for a long time and never comes, but eventually comes. It's beginning to happen a little bit here. There is a point at which the can cannot be kicked further down the road. And people start saying, wait, I'm getting paid zero to buy this stuff. I'm now revolving out of growth stocks and technology ones into cyclicals because I basically can't find anything else cheap enough. Wait, what? how am I going to make a return on my money? And the US owes how much? And there is going to become a point where the dollar will naturally get a bit of relative weakness. And by the way, it will, it will possibly suit parts of the US economy for a bit of dollar weakness, as long as it's not a meltdown. So you're going to see, I think, some currency support in EM2. So I guess I would say this. I probably say, I probably would have said this last week, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But I'd rather play in my sandbox, as they say in America, than in the developed market one, other than to meet nice clients and, and to help them make money in what we do. That's very, uh, very good. Uh, a follow on very specific question from Josh Murray. What effects do you think the MSCI, ACWI, and emerging market indices continuing to add weighting to China A shares will have on uh, emerging markets as a whole, and how should EM investors be positioned to take advantage of this? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's that's an equity question, but it's also a fixed income question. I mean, the Chinese weighting in the index and fixed income is going, is going up through the roof. So both in equities and fixed income, we're gonna have much higher index weights. That's gonna attract more passive capital. It's just going to. So China's gonna attract more investment capital. That would be positive at the margin for both Chinese bonds and stocks. No question. And, and uh, Mark, as we start to look forward, um, uh, EM landscape 10 years from now, and it's really, I mean, when you think of uh, emerging markets, actually this would be true of the developed markets too, the, the amount of, of things that happen and change that occurs in these 10 year increments. I mean, if we go back 10 years, US still coming out of the credit crisis, um, you know, China basically, uh, uh, you know, not not touched by that and ran, ran right through it. Um, but if we look out 10 years from now, uh, and you and the question I'm asking about emerging markets, but you've got insight on a relative basis to everywhere else. Well, what is what does the landscape look like in 10 years? You mentioned China is the world's biggest economy by you know certainly uh, 2050, if not a lot sooner. But but 2030, we're standing here. 
describe the world to us uh, in as broad as broadly as you want, including the United States and Western Europe. Okay, happy to do that. Um, look, I think China is the biggest economy for sure. Uh, now by, I think, by 2030, China is the biggest economy. I think China is going to, well, it's going to be pretty close. It's going to be pretty close. Um, if not the biggest, it'll be very close to it. Um, we're, we're talking 10 years away. We're talking an 8% growth rate next year. We're talking over the next five years. It's going to grow more than all the other developed market economies combined. So yes, starting from a lower place, but I mean, look at it. What have we got? 15 trillion of Chinese bonds against 40 trillion of, of U.S. Treasuries. You know, it's, it's getting uh, 40 billion. It's getting it's getting bigger all the time. So I I, I think the China China by 2030 could well be the biggest economy. Yes, I think uh, Asia will continue to dominate in terms of growth. I just I just think it will. Um, if you look at, you know, I gave some figures earlier on in terms of the percentage of, of the EM growth that came out of Asia. Um, they they got over the population issue that at one stage was creeping in, and at one stage China had a one-child policy, which was possibly not a growth engine. If you kept on having only one child, mathematically, you ended up with less growth in a 50 years than you did before you started. That's gone now. And, and I think certainly as countries get richer, they tend to um, have less children, but all over Asia, the reproduction rates are very, very high. And I think that is a feeder of domestic growth amongst other things. So I think Asia will be possibly even more dominant than it is now in, in the global economies. I think um, the old world, if you like the oldest world, the UK and Europe will probably have the toughest time because um, it, it, unless it can provide some kind of edge in terms of technology, um, as a, as a percentage share of global GDP is going to be going to be shrinking, and, and and I believe much faster than the U.S. Um, and and as a result, these are going to look like smaller economies that are, that are less liquid. And the biggest challenge for them will be, of course, as they as they begin to find financing harder in their in their bond markets, as the international bid for their markets gets less, um, that they, they will tend to be growing less and need to put up higher tax rates, and you'll get a more complicated place to be. So I would be more negative UK and Europe. U.S. I think will be doing what the U.S. does. The challenge for the U.S., like like a lot of old democracies, is is making sure that you've got a system that you want to keep it and and to continue focusing on the opportunities in which is now the biggest economy in the world and is a fabulous place and 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 making sure that the best is made of that. So the important thing going forward over the next ten years as the U.S. is maintaining the system, <laughs> maintaining the checks and balances, and meanwhile burning with that whole entrepreneurial zeal and technological. Uh, affirmation, if you desire from the U.S., um, that's really driven you where you've got to now. So I think the U.S. is the second largest economy, no question, in, in 10, 15 years. Um, it will need to be continuing to use, if you like, the, the, the less state-directed application of capital to find advantage. And I, I would hope that if American education system continues, and that ability to think freely and separately and individually continues, and the democratic system is preserved, it will continue to be one of the two most important economies in the world and a very big, if you like, can, uh, ameliorator of what will then be the largest economy. Because like everything, we need balance. Uh, that was very, uh, very, very interesting. And I have a follow-on question that is related to that from my colleague, Grace Yoon, who asked, China now owns over one trillion of US debt. I think it's three trillion, isn't it? It's a huge number. Uh, it has three trillion of reserves. Yeah. And it's over a trillion of debt, I think. Yeah. Okay. So should analysts, investors worry about China weaponizing its U.S. Uh, Treasury holdings to impact interest rates and economic growth in the U.S.? Or is that less of a worry, given that it would also uh, potentially uh, theoretically hurt China? Uh, I think I think that's a, that's a very good question. I think, yes, you should always worry and, and, and never forget it, because tail risk events of what blow things up, whether it be financial crises or COVID or whatever the heck. So you should you should you should try and not forget it. Um, I think uh, somebody's got to buy the paper at the minute. So you're in a bit of a prisoner's dilemma in the US. Um, they are still accumulating reserves in China. I, I, I think that um, it, you're right. The, the person asking the question is completely correct that it would hurt China to some extent to to be aggressive in that space. 
But if China's domestic economy continues to grow at the speed it is, it'll become less of a problem for them. And especially if they start recycling more of their surpluses, not to finance US deficits to just buy their goods, but they start saying, wait, we can, we can start recirculating some of these reserves into the emerging world and into other economies, we can get a bigger bang for our buck. So we just start buying less. Or, or we outgrow our US 1 trillion debt problem, if you like. So I think over time, it is something to be concerned about. I think in the short term, it's unlikely to be something that's going to have a dramatic impact. But again, at the margin, it's why one would expect a, a gently weaker dollar. Yeah. Well, you know, this this is uh, a follow-on question here, and we start to pull it together. Uh, it's interesting for me as an American to ask you as an Englishman this question, and that is on, the, on, on this whole theme, and obviously emerging markets, and you get this from investors too, uh, uh, China is such a, uh, you know, a huge part of it now. Uh, if you're uh, looking at the U.S. And, and, and you're trying to help make policy going forward over the next 10 or 20 years uh, in order to, to deal with a situation that we have not had since the World War II, which is an economy, a single economy, not only comparable in size, uh, but bigger with faster growth, despite the fact that it's bigger, which again, has never happened. Uh, and, and you said some of this before, American education, technological development, but um, what's your policy prescription for uh, a world that the Americans have not ever seen, you know, have not seen in uh, 75 years now, uh, uh, since the end of World War II, uh, we've been the biggest and fastest growing economy in the world, or the biggest with enough growth to stay the biggest. So what, what are the, the takeaways you have for the mostly American audience listening to this on the United States? Yeah. Um, I think if, if I look at the, unfortunately, fortunately, I'm not old enough, but if I look at the British experience coming out of, um, uh, coming out of the Second World War and something that completely changed our place in the world, no matter what we might get to think, um, there is a quite considerable momentum behind being the hegemon, if you like. So there's a very there's a there's a lot of mem muscle memory in global investors, in 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 countries, in people who remember the education system, the benefits, the language. There's an enormous amount of momentum that one has going into a oops, somebody else is coming up on the rails. So there is a lot of momentum, and I think the key thing in that is to use it to build alliances to provide balance against what's coming. So if we look at China and therefore Asia, that's a pretty big mass of what's going on. Um, there are very strong alliances that can be built in Asia as long as everybody understands that West and East are the same but different and, and that one needs to be managed through situations where there'll be particular people who China offers a great deal of money to and they'll say, oh, we should swing way towards what the Chinese want to do. We should get less upset about them building islands, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there will be people who are very concerned and very fearful of China. They're very happy about their economic growth, but they're nervous in terms of just being big. And the Chinese may have no aggressive tendency whatsoever, but just a big person next door is pretty frightening. So I think the US needs to use the next 10 years, 20 years, to be what it has always used to be, which is a force for international agreement and balance, frankly, out of its own self-interest. And, and the obvious place to do it is the places that will have the biggest impact, both in terms of demographic and economy. And doing it early rather than later is better because you get more bang for your buck. So I'm, I'm making this up, but being very close to Indonesia, given the numbers of people and the speed of growth of the economy and where it sits, as long as everyone can get comfortable with what's happening politically, religiously, economically, sounds like a pretty good strategy if you're looking at having friends in Asia and, and being a part of what's a fast-growing part of the world. Looking after your backyard in terms of Latin America and encouraging it not to go too extreme, right or left, and providing help vis-a-vis -vis through the IMF or directly support in terms of control of the drug trade, whatever it takes, but to look after your backyard is a positive thing to do. So I think I mean, there's a lot of momentum, and so one needs to use one's ability to set the, the jurisprudence situation, the language, the economies early on in this on this piece. Use that to get a long tail of benefit from it. That was very well said, and, and irrespective of uh, of what happens in two weeks, uh, I think a, a, a great policy prescription for Americans and American leadership in the world. 
Mark, this has been terrific. Uh, thank you for uh, being so patient with wide ranging and moving around topics. Um, for our clients and uh, my colleagues and everybody listening, all the friends of Rockefeller, thank you to Mark. I close always with a quotation and I borrowed one from Tom Friedman who published The World is Flat in 2005 uh, with many themes that we talked about today. And Tom said the following, uh, those of you who know me well will uh, see why I like this. He said, quote, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better start running. I think that's a great uh, policy prescription for everybody, including uh, all on the phone uh, and um, our countrymen around uh, this country and uh, our friends in the UK and around the world. So Mark, many thanks again. Uh, all the best to our clients, colleagues, and friends of Rockefeller. Uh, we'll see you again, I think, in a couple of weeks, and we'll continue to try to bring you best-in-class content like we heard today. Take care.